Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody. Quick reminder, the Other People podcast is a listener-supported show. All episodes are free, nearly 500 episodes and counting, all available free of charge. There is an official Other People app. That too is free. Everything's free. So if you listen regularly and you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Once again, that's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All support is greatly appreciated. Okay, let's get started. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's great to be with you. And uh, I, I have an excellent show for you today. I'm very excited to have Jarrett Middleton here. He is the author of a novel called Darkensaw. It's called Darkensaw. It's available now from Dezank Books. It is the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. And uh, Jarrett and I had an incredibly um, rich conversation. We recorded a while ago. He was swinging through town on a book tour. He was traveling the country and uh, reading for people. And he stopped by and sat down. And uh, it was it was just one of those conversations that got me excited uh, when I thought about being able to share it with you. So that is coming up in just a moment. Jarrett Middleton, his novel, One More Time, is called Dark and Saw. And, you know, before we get going, I do feel like it's very important to talk about the Matthew Salisis fundraiser that I'm doing. If you're new to the program or are not aware of what is going on, I am doing a T-shirt fundraiser for Matthew Salisis and family. Uh, Matt was a guest on this program in, I believe, episode 145. He is an author of several books and a mensch, uh, a very beloved member of the literary community. His wife, Catherine, is battling stomach cancer. Uh, it's a very difficult situation. She is in Korea with her family and one of their children as she undergoes treatment. Matt, meanwhile, is holding down the fort here in the States, working a job. He's with their uh, their eldest child. So not only are they dealing with a, a very serious illness in their family, but they're also geographically separated uh, in the name of proper medical care and family support. And so they're raising funds to help bridge the gap for some aggressive treatments and also to fund travel expenses and so on and so forth. Uh, they have a burden on them financially and otherwise. And we, you know, there, there's a fundraiser 
that has been happening independent of this program, trying to raise funds to help them, and they're getting close. They're about $20,000 shy of their goal. In order to be fully funded, they need $90,000. They're at 70 now. So I'm trying to sell t-shirts to help bridge that gap, and there has been a very exciting development since I spoke about this last week. Many of you may be aware. Roxanne Gay, also an author, uh, also a past guest on this program, uh, many of you, pretty much everybody probably knows who Roxane Gay is at this point. She has very, very generously agreed to match funds up to $5,000. So if we raise $5,000, she'll put down another five. That gets us to 10. So very exciting. I think we're going to get there. We have, uh, at, the, at the time that this show airs, there are two days left to uh, support this fundraiser. If we hit $10,000, if we max that or whatever, great. We can push past it. Let's keep going. So if by the time you listen to this, we've already hit that 5K, meaning with Roxanne's matching funds, we're at 10K, great. Add on top of it because we need to get the Salises, Salises, <laughs> the Salises family, we need to get them to 20K. That's the goal. Uh, in an effort to get there, I have put out a call to publishers because I feel like this is a member of the literary community whom we are trying to support. I'm asking people who work at publishing companies who might listen to this program to consider matching the 10 K that we raise. Can you do that? Can you support this author and uh, donate $10,000, match it, get this family fully funded, ease their burden, do a very good thing in exchange for that. What I'm offering, uh, if you match 10 K, if you're a publisher or some other company or some person of extraordinary uh, means, I will offer you 20 episodes of sponsorship on this podcast. So if you're a publisher, 20 episodes, I will sing your praises. I will uh, personally voice ads, uh, you know, for books that you want to, uh, you know, get the word out about and so on and so forth. If you're interested, you can uh, DM me on Twitter. My handle on Twitter is at other PPL. That's the podcast Twitter feed. You can also email me at letters at other That's letters at other, uh, other PPL.com. If you are listening to this program and you have not yet, uh, you know, got a t-shirt and supported this thing, I hope you'll consider doing that now. It's an easy, th it's an easy way to do something very good in this world. And, uh, certainly the world could use some more good stuff happening. There's a lot of dark stuff happening. So here's a way to do something and to shine a little light. And I know that many of you out there who listen have already done so. And I just want to say thank you for doing that. It means a lot to me. I know it means a lot to uh, Matt Salisis and his family. It's not easy to need help. It's not easy to ask for help. And you know, the truth is I don't know Matt and Catherine. I've never met Catherine. I've talked to Matt on this program. We did it by Skype. So I've never actually even been in his presence, but I remember very well the conversation that we had and how we were talking about being fathers. We were both, you know, young fathers basically, or, or new to fatherhood. And I remember we bonded about that in our call. It made an impression on me and just his overall goodness made an impression on me. And to think of going through something like this as a husband, as a father, as a human being, period. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it really tugs at the heart. It's not an easy thing to have to deal with, to say the least. And uh, it, it, uh, it bums me out that we live in a country and in a world where we have to crowdsource funds for cancer treatment, where we have to do t-shirt fundraisers to help people pay for medical bills when they're seriously ill. 
that bums me out. But you know what? That's, that's how things are right now. So you have to kind of play the hand you're dealt. And I don't know. I don't know why. I just, it just, it, it, this whole set of circumstances has moved me to act. I felt like, well, you know what? I got, I have this show. I have this microphone. I have this audience. Let's see if we can uh, put it to good use and get this thing figured out. This small thing, this, this matter of dollars. Let's see if we can make it right. This one thing in the world. Let's make it right. So that's what we're doing here. Uh, if you want to support the cause, there is a link at otherppl.com. You can find it on the show's website. You can go to the Twitter feed at otherppl. You can check us out, uh, you know, the other people Facebook feed. It's all there. I've been talking about it incessantly on social media and posting it on uh, otherppl.com. It's also posted on the nervousbreakdown.com. Track it down. Click on the link. Get a t-shirt. Get multiple t-shirts. Make a donation. Support the cause. Do a good thing. Make this right. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest again is Jarrett Middleton. His novel is called Darkensaw. It is the official November selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. I am not exaggerating when I say we had a wonderful conversation. It was really, really interesting, and uh, it ran a little long. I didn't care. I could have sat there all night practically. So very pleased to get to share this with you, very pleased to get to shine a light on this uh, excellent novel, Darkensaw. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is the author, Jarrett Middleton. Yeah, I was joking around with, with folks at the reading last night. Um, New Hampshire's, you know, much... Much like a lot of places in this country. I mean, even, to, you know, Arkansas and the book is set in the Ozarks, right? Yeah, what are you doing in the Ozarks? And I, I'm just, you know, well, the story about the, the Bane twins and the, the cyclical murder myth and the curse uh, in the book, um, I mean, it just had to happen. It had to be told, you know, family of bluegrass musicians in the hills and the Ozarks. But I'm really attracted to these sort of, like, liminal, uh, you know, um, geographical settings where... You know, it's almost like, yeah, there is modern civilization, but you take a wrong turn or you keep going down the end of the lane and, and you're in the, you're, you're going backwards in time, you know? Yeah, it's not, it's not very many turns. In yeah, exactly. The Ozarks are like that. And then New Hampshire's like that. I'm from the seacoast. I'm from a beach town. So I grew up playing drums in a punk rock band and, and surfing and skateboarding and snow, snowboarding in the white mountains in the winter. Sure. It's a great place to grow up. You surf in New Hampshire? Yeah. 
Really? Freezing. Yeah. Freezing cold. I would bet. But I love, I mean, consequently, I love the cold. I'm a, you know, good old New Englander like that. But, uh, you know, the seacoast is very cultured and progressive, and it's a great quality of life. But then at the same time, some of my friends back home, they're, you know, they got, they got their sleeves cut off and, they, you know, the videos they post on social media is them unloading, you know, fully automatic machine guns and sure. they smoke two packs a day. And what is it? What is the state motto of New Hampshire? Live free or die. Live free or die. That's right. FOD. I was going to say, I was going to say, I was going to say, don't tread on me, but they it's, got, those are the tattoos, the LFOD 603 with the granite state with the, yeah. the old man in the mountain. In yeah. The White Mountains. There is like a rugged individualism and it just don't fuck with me. It's like a don't tread on me, but in the North. Yeah. I, I read one, uh, some, saying a long time ago that uh new hampshire is the south of the north yeah i mean i always joke because I, I grew up partially in indiana and i always joke that it's the utah of the midwest which is sort of a similar kind Except, of uh, you know yeah where it's like it's out of uh, you know i always say it's like it's just it's it's latitude is not uh necessarily in line with like its attitude how do you like that for a rhyme it's pretty good. <laughs> you got to trademark that. Yeah, I should. Well, I think Jimmy Buffett beat me to it. But, um, but yeah, like there are these, there, there are these, and, and I read an excellent essay about it actually. And it was something that I, I wish I could paraphrase well, but it basically broke down the way that um, like migratory patterns worked in early colonial America com- combined with like socioeconomics. And like, it basically explained why that is. There's a reason for it or like a set of reasons for it. And, uh, you know, I, like America doesn't necessarily sort itself out perfectly according to uh, geography, latitude, et cetera. Like a lot yeah, of it- and, and so much in New England is it was the first colonies and it was the first cities and it was the first states. Right. So yeah. those communities, it, they, they weren't planned. I mean, you look at it like a roadmap of Boston and it's like. You know, John Hancock had to build a road from his house to the post office. Right. And that's why that road is there. <laughs> practical. Very practical. You know, and then, you know, you see New York and it's like, you see Boston? Let's not do what they did. Yeah, let's make a grid. <laughs> let's make a grid. Exactly. <laughs> a little planning goes a long way. Um, no, I read a uh, same, same idea. Um, I read a great essay. I think it might have been Boston Magazine um, or the Boston Review that had a phenomenal essay, same, same concept, uh, about, you know, colonial in New England, the colonial patterns of settlement. Um, and they said that culture in Boston between, was split between North shore and South shore. And the split could go all the way back to the pilgrims landing at Plymouth rock on the South end and the Puritans, and in Salem and the witch burning. The pilgrims the were the end. hipsters, dude. They were. They had culture. They were cool. They were, they were cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. And then the Puritans were not so cool. That's interesting. So the split and was you can the see split, it today. And the split was there from the beginning. Yeah. And it's still, I mean, you, uh, I read, I read it and, and I had, I grew up in it and I had never phrased yeah. the cultural divide in that way. That's like the origin story. It is. And then one th- it's one of those things that just snapped into place and it made, it was an aha moment. I went, that is so correct. So, okay. So are you, uh, like Middleton? What is that? Is it English? What is that? Uh, the Middleton is, uh, is my father's, uh, side and my father's Canadian. Oh, uh, Toronto Scarborough. Okay. okay. He was a professional hockey player. He was the captain of the Boston Bruins. No shit. He was. Wow. Um, so Boston heritage, my, my dad is a, was a captain of the Boston Bruins and he's the president of the Bruins alumni 
today, so he's still involved with the team. Wow. Uh, I grew up playing hockey every day of my life until I, bet. I was 14. That's a good sport. Yeah. It's the best. It's good. I'm built for it, too. Yeah. you yeah. got to be, because these guys, when you see these hockey players, they're like world-class athletes, but like... These guys aren't like shredded. It's like a different kind of body type, and yeah, they're just the most rugged, pliable. I mean, it's the hardest. It, I mean, the, the athleticism is so well-rounded. Yeah, right. they're not shredded. They're not cut. You know, they're not so finely tuned. That but to skate on, like to skate, uh, change directions, be it like a dead sprint on the ice, like all that stuff, like that's exhausting. Oh, I mean, we used to. I mean, I was on an elite uh, squad when I was when I was coming up. And uh, I was I was on the pre pro track until I was fourteen. And what, uh, then what happened? You started playing in a punk band. Uh, yeah, I mean, long story short, uh, parents got divorced. Um, my mother got sick. Uh, she's she's well and good now. Oh, she is. Oh yeah, good. Absolutely. What did she get? What was her sickness? Uh, she she had cancer, and she was a, a a horrific alcoholic. Okay. So my family just sort of imploded. All right. Uh, so, I mean, the structured life of hockey, right? And the pressure on me with my dad's name and coming up playing yeah, in New England. Yeah, no, no right? pressure. He's only the captain <laughs> no, of the Bruins. No, no pressure. There were, well, <laughs> literally, I was sitting down at, at, at 12, 13 with trainers, scouts. I did summer training. I did off-ice training. Damn. They used to put me in a harness, make me skate on a plexiglass treadmill. Uh-huh. They used to take my oxygen intake. It's like Ivan Drago in Rocky Four. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, so, you know... I, I had a five-day-a-week hockey schedule when I was 13, um, and I, I was good. Uh, it was all I ever knew, but I didn't necessarily love it. I was an introvert. I was an artist. I, right. I, I loved music and politics and, yeah. and you know, writing. So uh, so my family got divorced, and even just the move from, um, from the North Shore of Boston to the seacoast of New Hampshire— you know, it's so funny we're out here in the West and everything's so massively spread out. Yeah, uh, that move is about less than forty-five minutes north right. along the coast. Right, and it was like it was like a different country. It's like you went to Mars. It was like I went to Mars. It was like oh well, the hockey culture of North Boston isn't bearing down. People aren't asking me where I'm going to play Division One school. Right, 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 uh, or full hockey scholarship. That's hard to be like the son of a the captain of the Boston Bruins and to you know like regard even if you're not an introvert. Right, that's a lot to carry. Well, I play. I grew up with Ray Bork's son, Chris Bork. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He played in the NHL for a few years. And this is before like the hockey salaries were like through the roof. Like, right? Yeah, my like, dad's career is very interesting. Um, you can get closer to the mic too, just to make sure we. Uh, yeah, he um, he was uh, you know, in that era where he told me stories where role players and tough guys, you know, on the third and fourth lines, uh, they would work construction in the summer. Yeah. You know, they that's like old pro, that's like old pro football players. Yeah, these guys just got wrecked. <laughs> exactly, they did. They didn't and when they were rich. used up, they just they just tossed them. That's right. And these, I mean, like even today, the average career in football. I mean, you see, like you read about it, it's like two and a half or three years for people who make it. Yeah, it's brutal. They don't get any money. They got no guaranteed salaries. I mean, but the only way that I can I can even make sense of doing something and hockey, I don't think falls quite into this category. Though I guess there's some danger to traumatic head injury and stuff like that. There is actually. Uh, it's it's funny that it just sort of came up from talking, but the novel I'm uh, I'm halfway into right now is about a young hockey player from New England drawing on my roots for yeah. the first time really in in my work and uh, gets a vicious head hit and has to deal with uh, CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, right. which is a degenerative brain disorder. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, between the NFL and the NHL. What's the what's the what's the uh, incidence of hockey players who get this? Oh, it's it's. Uh, 
It's extremely high. Oh, it is. It is. Shit. Uh, I was thinking, because I feel like hockey, you get bashed a lot into the boards, but like, it's not, it's not, doesn't seem quite as vicious. Uh, well, a lot of it is, um, a lot of it was fighting. Right. You know, my dad didn't wear a helmet. Uh-huh. You know, all his teeth are fake. Really? Oh, yeah. These you guys see, are tough. You see him walking around with his shirt off, and, you know, he looks like someone stitching them back together. Uh-huh. Uh, but he wasn't even a fighter. He was a nifty little goal scorer. His nickname was Nifty. That's not, that's uh, so, not a but tough back name. In, but back in the seventies, he had uh, he had the big guys. He well, he had Terry O'Reilly and Derek Sanderson. His and, goons. Uh, and they were just the toughest guys you've ever seen. If, if anybody touched my dad, these guys would come over and, and pound the hell out of them. Just a, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, the prevalence of CTE and and concussion symptoms in hockey, um, the data, the the arc for the data is is over a lifetime. It's over years. Yeah. Um, it really came about with a fighter named Bob Probert from the Detroit Red Wings. He died rather abruptly when he, when he was 52, 53. And he had told his wife um, that he knew something was wrong with his brain and nobody believed him. That's like Dave Dorson, the football player. He like mm-hmm. left a note. was like, you know, save my brain, basically. So, so Bob Probert donated his brain to science, and they opened it and found these, these uh, regressive plaque structures uh-huh. in the central cortex of his brain. And it was the first time they could confirm CTE as a degenerative disorder, um, but it was only with a brain, a very you know, damaged brain from trauma, from repeated trauma mm-hmm. for years, only after death. But now they can, they're developing tests to test for it while, while you're alive. God, well, they just did this. So I'm te- reading a lot about it for the new book. Yeah. And my bet. character, yeah. I mean, it's like, fascinating. they just did the football study. Um, and I want to say 99% of it, like literally 99% of the players they tested. So that means if you're Had playing professional, form yeah, you, if you're playing professional football, like you're getting this shit, like your, your brain is going to be, well, and there's no real data because so much money and effort has gone into the suppression of it. Yeah. I mean, that would 90, like you said, the, the recent study this year for the NFL, 99%, 98, 99%. That's, that's, that could be a death knell for the NFL. Okay. So this, if it was treated seriously. Okay. So this is, this is making me think that like, it's actually a blessing that you're an introvert and you did not go on to a professional <laughs> hockey career. And yep. I, a, I just dealt with the hazards of, of being an introvert. I was gonna, an introvert and a writer, which comes but, with its own like traumatic brain issues. Um, yeah. Different, different traumatic brain issues. So, okay. So you're a kid, you're growing up, you're a sort of expected, I think at least if not by your folks, by your community to be like a hockey star. I think that's sort of expected of the first part of my life. Yeah, absolutely. So you're growing up and you're in a household where your mother is uh, battling alcoholism. And then at 14, things come to a head. And like at this point, are you already, uh, you know, reading books? Are you literary at that point? Or is this something that happened after your mom gets sick and after she, I'm assuming she sobered up? She did. She is, uh, she's over a decade sober now. Right. Um, and, and we're close, you know, I love my mother dearly. So the, the other half of the Boston story is while my dad's Canadian and, you know, played for the Bruins, right. which made him a big star in Boston, um, my mother is South Boston Irish Catholic. Okay. She calls me Ja. She's got a wicked accent. Uh-huh. Um, huge family. Uh, goes way back in, in Jamaica Plain and, and down the South Shore to Hull. Just like dozens of kids. Oh, what? I mean, when we, yeah, when I go home, it's, uh, I, got, I got seven aunts and uncles no, my mom uh, my mom 40 50 yeah you know nieces, cousins. nephews cousins yeah. well so like it went generational 
Absolutely. Like the next generation had like 10 kids too. Uh, yeah. I mean, every time I go home, because I'm on the West coast, every time I go home, I, I, it's like a big, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I feel bad to say it, but I like, I lose track of who I'm meeting. I'm like, wait, how do you, it's like a, it's like a flow chart. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot to keep track of. No, and a lot of them, they still go to the same Catholic church. They never left, you know, their hometown. They all, you know, they take, they get the Christmas card with the Irish knit wool sweaters. And I envy that a little bit. I you know, in a weird way, to, I do too. Having that like full extended family nearby, having that sense of, and I love all of them deeply. I mean, I just think it's, it, it there is something to be said for the tight knit structured and, and the, if and they're the able access. to make it through, there are a lot of them that are, in, you know, my, my cousins that are in college, uh, the young professionals are very successful. They're very, you know, they're wonderful people. Um, you know, my life just went a different way. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, you, I, I wish that my sisters were out here or that I was like, that we were all in the same place, but you, I mean, you really can't predict. I never expected to live in Los Angeles until suddenly I did. It wasn't something I planned out. You know, like life just takes. So, what's the short version of that? Since you know, graduate school. What do you mean? Like, what's the short version of how I got here? How you how you landed in LA? I went to graduate school here. I sort of didn't know what I was doing, but it was like, oh, I got into USC, so I'll go there and try to write a book, and then I did that, and then I hung around, and then I met my wife, and then you know, like, and next thing you know, you look up, and it's been almost two, like, twenty years. Yeah. If anybody asked me, you know, if I could see myself almost a decade in Seattle, you know, there there was no. There was nothing of Providence leading me there. It was just, uh, you know, it, it's where we built a life. There you go. So we'll get to Seattle, but I want to get more. I want to get back into your teenage years because I feel like 14, 15, 16, 17, those had to be kind of pivotal years for you. You were going through a lot. Your parents split up. You, uh, that's right when you turn into music. That's right when I think like art starts to like mean a lot. So you asked, was I literary? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had the blessing to grow up in the Boston punk rock scene. Okay. So and that was vibrant. It was huge. Okay. Um, and I didn't know how blessed I was until you travel, you meet people like Midwest, you know, small towns. They go like, we didn't have that. Yeah. I didn't you know have that. We went to shows three, three nights a week. We were in bands. We, we could barely play four chords and we, we played basement shows or the VFW hall and there's 500 kids there. Wow. So I was really blessed because, you know, you grow in punk rock, you grew up with the lore of 77 and, you know, in, uh, you know, hardcore early 80s, then it kind of dies out. But looking back on it now, especially in 2017, uh, the 90s was was a big second wave boom for punk. You know, punk was charting, you know, whether or not it was poppy, like, you know, Rancid, Green Day, Blink-182, like they were charting. And then that meant all those bands on all those labels were getting exposure and being played. Uh, Boston was just this hotbed where it was this even mix of of punk rock, hardcore, and straight edge hardcore in the nineties. Yeah, and uh, and ska, right, right. So then, so you would go to you go to a straight edge hardcore show on a on a Monday night and get your head kicked in. Do you ever know that? You ever heard of the band uh, Split Lip? Yeah, that was a kid, that, a kid that went to my high school started that band, or he was in it. <laughs> That's like my only connection, but like I wasn't in that scene. But like, and he was pretty much the, like in my high school, he was like the entire scene, but like, what, what was straight edge? Like you get your ass kicked. It was violent. Straight, straight edge is, is sort of funny to talk about now, but I mean, straight edge started the orthodoxy of straight edge started with Ian McKay and, and minor threat in DC. All right. But 
I mean, it was the the no drugs, no drinking, no sex. It was it was just this very no sex. I think. Well, I think the sex thing was sort of. <laughs> got to have something. Everybody yeah. needs one vice. However many X's you earn. <laughs> uh, like but it. it was uh it was this sort of hyper aggressive hardcore. Mm-hmm. So you know it wasn't street punk and it wasn't metal. It was right in the middle. It was it it, it came out of that second wave. So the the early bands that were sort of Boston legends when I was thir- twelve through I got into punk really young. I went to my first show when I was eleven, I think. Wow. You know, I remember my, my dad dropping me off at the Middle East in Cambridge in like ninety five, ninety six. You know, maybe because I was a hockey player and I, you know, you know, I could I handle say, myself. Did he teach? You, did he teach you how to fight? I mean, I, I think hockey taught me how to fight. You you fight as like an eleven year old hockey player. Yep. You're, you're punching. It's part of the culture. Yep, definitely. And then you go to shows that when you're twelve years old, and you know, kids are doing windmill kicks and flying off the stage and running on heads, and you just the shows were were. When I when it started out, I know I sound like an old man. Like you know, back in the day, it was great. And then you know, I got a younger brother who's who's also uh, very into punk and hardcore. And he was five six years younger than me. And he said when I got out of it and he got into it, he said just that gap. He he goes, the shows are so violent now. I, I can't even I can't even go anymore. People are just frustrated. And it was getting nuts. Out. It was nuts. I mean, when I I got out by seventeen eighteen, so it was really. I went to college in Montreal, and, and I was writing and reading at that. And I was really politically active at that time, too. Wow. So I think the political consciousness of punk rock, you know, gave way to, to uh, I actually got into reading basically by, by politics first. Like Noam Chomsky? Yeah, Chomsky's that gateway. You know, yeah. Bad Religion put out a, a, a seven-inch with their songs on one side and a Chomsky speech on the other side, oh, on the B side. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I've read some Chomsky. I mean, like... I can read, like, I'm very, uh, I don't know, like, not malleable, persuadable, but like, you know, you read like Naomi Klein or you read Chomsky or you read, I don't know, any like well written treatise. Like you can kind of, it has an effect on you. I can like, I come away from Chomsky and I'm like, this fucking world is fucked. Like, yeah, it's very, it's it's very argumentative. It's, it's bleak, but it's also like this deadpan. He's such a, he's such a collected you know he doesn't have any kind of like he's emotional so yeah and so he's like i met him once oh you did i did i was i don't like you know some of my stories out of context sound bizarre i uh i was a young student radical uh, and i was you know increasingly left so from the you know i'm kind of jumping around but um i was a student radical when i was 16 um and then i you know i increasingly went left so i i eventually was was influenced by anarchists thinkers and then but really that you know anarchism and marxism leads to political philosophy and then political philosophy leads to heavy real philosophy and then philosophy even just sort of leads to the narrative thrust of of philosophy um a, as a form of prose okay if that makes any sense you know it was it was kind of that in poetry and i started to find um the the how influential how tight knit the narrative thrust of philosophy was that was the big gear in my brain that actually deposited me somewhere in the realm of fiction. Really? It did. I guess that makes sense. I mean, there are a lot of people that I've talked with on this show who I think have an educational background in philosophy, like that was their major in college, or 
that was mine before I switched to writing. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or yeah. like, you know, or their work is heavily influenced. Like they read a lot of philosophy just as like, uh, you know, for pleasure and inspiration or whatever. I but still do. You do? Yeah. Who are your philosophers? Um, influential or like who yeah, just I just, who I always go to for, you know, yeah, I always who, return to. Who do you always return to? I always return to, uh, first and foremost, uh, Deleuze. Okay. French postmodernist. Um, I mean, so, so in, in one way, so batshit out there that it's the, the lexicon and the syntax, it's an entire new way to even connect thought epistemologically. You know, it's not even, it's not even a one dimensional, um, you know, point A to point B, uh, argumentative structure. He, he was thinking thoughts in a new way. Uh, so you, I don't, I don't think anybody, even Deleuze scholars, could, could ever even write about it and say, this is what Deleuze means. Do you, do you like it? <laughs> okay, so why do you like it so much? Is it one of these things where, like, he just sort of, like, rattles your cage and, um, I don't know, I can see that having, like, a loosening effect to read somebody who is jumping around and, and uh, thinking and writing really unconventionally. Like, is there something really lucid in there that you can find? Yeah. I, for, for me personally, for Deleuze, uh, he, so he came out of the Western Marxist sort of uh, the sixties revival of Marxism. Right. So he came out of Paris 68, but, but in academic philosophy, um, you know, uh, postmodernism had already taken root. So Marxism is very modernist. It's early modernist, very structured, right? It, it, it's very systemic. Um, and then Deleuze was actually a student of Foucault's uh, in France in the 50s and 60s. So it had the, the Marxist, the, the social and class-based analysis of Marxism and the, like, the intellectual rigor of Marxism, but without any of the ideology. So then that was what led me in and I could I could identify the thread. It's like I got like I, I was just pulling the thread and I got led in further. And then I went and then I looked up and I went, Oh, that this isn't what he's doing at all. You know, the the class based analysis is one of is one thread in a tapestry. There's a hundred different analyses analyses here. So he started talking about the state and power and the structure of the ego and how um, essentially he started saying, well, you know, let's stop talking about things in revolutionary terms. Let's stop talking about things in emancipatory terms. And let's start looking at, this is an old Marxism trick, but let's start looking at the internal contradictions of the thing in itself. So then when he did that, uh, he didn't just do that for egregious, um, displays of, of misuses of power. Right. Like it's easy to criticize power when it's fascism or the Holocaust or police brutality. Right. But it's much harder to criticize power in and of itself, even in its most responsible uses. Right. Right. Um, so just, then he just started doing that with everything. He just did that with language. He did. He has a chapter in a, a book called The Thousand Plateaus, like uh, a chapter that's called um, like, what does the earth think it is? about objective form being a form of, uh, in nature, being a form of consciousness and, and self-creation. So, I mean, it's just myriad, right? A to Z. And then all of a sudden, if, if I'm feeling stuck in fiction or an essay or, or film or whatever I'm doing at any point, um, that kicks that I feel like it just, 
it forms new neural pathways. That's what I was going to say. I found, I find a way around the obstacle. Yeah. It's like a laxative. I go around it. I go above it. I go under it. Right. It's like a laxative. It just, yeah, yeah it just kicks it out of your head. Okay. Good to know. So that, that works for me when I'm stuck. Well, no, I mean, it's like, and I, it's, it's, I think, I think a lot of writers have that, but it's a good thing to remember is that you got to have those kind of like, they're, they're almost like desk references, like books you keep near the desk in case you need them. And Definitely. You, you know, you're, you're, you're having a slow day or you just need some inspiration and some books, they give you that shot consistently over time. It's nice when you find one that like doesn't diminish or that you find new things in as you go. That's why I said Deleuze. Yeah. I mean, there's a, I could talk about a dozen others, but, um, yeah. Deleuze is, is, uh, the most, it never diminishes. It's you change and you come back to it and the same content was there the entire time. And you, some of it, you didn't have access to yet uh-huh. or some of it. You never connected point A to point B until you were ready to. Right. Um, uh, I and that's the most motivation. If you could even, if I could even write, you know, with a thread of that amount of like plasticity and that, that amount of just utter sheer brilliance, you know, that's the goal. So are you, uh, okay. So where are you, you said you were a student radical politically. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but like, punk rock i can sort of i can sort of begin to form an image oh well, yeah you, uh you want like the highlights yeah uh so in high school um i formed a student rights group that was banned from meeting uh, on school grounds why i don't really know were you violent no no okay. no not at all it's like the weather underground of your high school. I mean, I eventually got toward, you know, fairly confrontational, you know, violent anarchist groups. Um, that was a little later. But no, starting out in high school, it, it was just uh, we opposed thing like after Columbine, we opposed wearing ID badges. OK, uh, just small little policy changes. Right. But I think the school board and the, 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 the you know, paltry politics of the local School boards and, you know, town councils and whatever weren't used to even being observed or hearing input from students. Um, The ROTC had a firing range on our campus for our high school. That's comforting. So then we just went to the school board meetings and we went, well, um, if there's a zero tolerance policy on firearms for students, why why is the ROTC allowed to discharge weapons on school grounds? And then all hell broke loose. All we did was ask critical questions yeah you know uh so it was banned yeah no this all right here's a funny story so we were banned from meeting so then what we did the next year was uh twofold one we started a bunch of front groups that were accepted from the student union that came with a student budget so we started like amnesty international we started you know all the you know whatever vigil groups and uh, social change groups and whatever and then we maxed, <laughs> we, uh, we threw a, uh, this is right before the, this is uh, right after 9-11. So we threw a, uh, a benefit concert for Iraq, uh, where my punk rock band played. And what was it called? The, the concert? No, the band. The band? Uh, that band was, uh, the movement. Okay. <laughs> Simple enough. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I was in a, I was in a, like a pop punk band called Goodbye Me, and then I was in a band called The Movement. <laughs> Goodbye Me. Goodbye Me. I haven't <laughs> I even said that or thought about that in, in <laughs> over a decade. That's good. Like uh, that. So, so we threw a, a show at the school, and kids came. They paid a cover at the door. 
we raise over two, three grand, but you know, for a bunch of kid high school kids, you know, you got a envelope full of cash. Yeah. Um, and then we drain the, the, the student union budgets for all the front groups. And we threw that money in this envelope. And then we did a, a aid drive for generic pharmaceuticals and, and children's clothing and art supplies. And you were really active. We were really, yeah, we did. We did all this. I still have the press clippings. What the and fuck I was, like, was I doing fuck? in high school? Jesus Christ. And it, it's wild to think about now. Yeah. We had over a dozen boxes of aid. Um, we had an envelope of over five grand in cash and we were going to send it to Iraq, but the UN and U S sanctions have been in place against Iraq since the first Persian Gulf war, right? Since, since 91. So, uh, it was illegal to send anything, especially monetarily or aid to Iraq. So we ended up getting in contact with a group called voices in the wilderness. Okay. That if I'm remembering correctly, the director was named Kathy Kelly and she won a Nobel peace prize and rejected it because Henry Kissinger had won it. Wow. She was the real deal. Principled stand. So a bunch of 15 and 16 year olds reach out to them and say, Hey, we got five grand in cash and a dozen boxes of aid. We need someone to get it into Iraq, you know, albeit illegally. So we met them in a, in a parking lot at 7am on like a Sunday morning. You, you met with, with a, a Nobel peace prize winner yeah, and, and gave them all the aid and all the money. And they flew it into Jordan and crossed the Iraqi border, uh, you know, on, on the ground. And they, they got all of this aid to, uh, to Iraq. Wow. Subsequently, uh, we had a visit from the intelligence services post nine 11. No shit. I was 16. Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a book. It's going to be called goodbye me. <laughs> so fast forward that, um, I got increasingly more radical. So a lot of anarchist philosophy, a lot of Boston is very active in, in, in terms of anarchism. Um, the only other person I've ever talked to on this show about anarchism is Dennis Cooper. He's deep. Hey, that. there we go. Yeah. Good. So good, are you still company. there? Are you still, uh, like, is there still strains of anarchism in your worldview or is it something that you kind of felt like was in, uh, in your youth and you sort of moved away from it? I mean, some of it's a, a, a reductionistic temper tantrum for sure. Uh, but philosophically, yeah, it, it was... Break it down for me again. I can break it down for listeners. Like, just, I mean, broad overview stuff. You don't have to get into the weeds, but, like, what, like what is... Because, like, I think people think anarchism, and they're thinking, like, people, like, lighting shit on fire and flipping over cop cars and, like, just going, like, bat shit. Yeah, well, it's actually sort of back in the news again with, with you know, Antifa and, and, and the anarchists and the black bloc and everything. You know, it's back in the news again. So I was, I was doing that a decade ago. I did Antifa work uh, in Boston a decade ago. You're like, dude, I was old school. I, I was, was doing well, this we shit. Were, we were doing it, and people, you know, people didn't even know we existed or that the neo-Nazi threat or the white supremacist threat was as bad as it was. Right. Uh, and now look. Yeah. Well, yeah. Now things are. I mean, it's sort of it's come to the fore. You know. Yeah, it's come full circle. Well, so, and now we have the chief, uh, you know, asshole in the white house. So right. they all feel emboldened that they're insane. You've seen this hand signal. Do you know this shit? This the white power hand signal. Well, that's the, the Pepe. I, is that what it is? That's what it is. Yeah. It's a, and, all, but it's like, this is right like, meme. this is like W and this is P that's, I mean, I've seen it. Like, I didn't realize this. I'm like, I'm not a hundred percent in the loop, I guess, but yeah. I was like reading about it on Twitter and Trump does this hand signal when he talks, 
And someone was saying, like, he didn't used to do this. Right. Like, this is kind of a new development when he's been doing his stump speech. And then you see all these pictures of, like, these Pepe people or whatever. I think if it is any amount intentional, that probably came from the Steve Bannon wing. Yeah. You know? And, like, I I could see Steve Bannon pulling Trump aside and being like, hey, just do this. It'll help you win. And Trump would be like, okay. Absolutely. You know, just make this hand signal when you talk. So the philosophical strains of anarchism are that the threat to the individual is that is is state power and and also global capitalism right so that they're both regimes of power um and the anarchist view is that they can't be reformed that they're totalitarian in nature uh so you know it 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 departs widely from you know liberal center left politics right liberal politics progressive politics uh, they're not interested in reform. They see their politics as a form of of self-defense, of radical self-defense and community building, uh, and and essentially revolutionary self-defense I was talking, against the state. Okay. I was talking about this today with somebody at work about um, capitalism and democratic socialism like the Bernie Sanders wing of the left right now. And, uh, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's got some hostility towards ca- like the, the worst, uh, infractions of capitalism, but like w- politically in your youth or maybe even today, like, do you think that there is any way that you could marry like democratic socialist policies, like, uh, like humane, uh, universal access to healthcare, for example, right. yeah. greater access to college education. Can you marry those kinds of safety net and progressive social policies with a free market? It's a, it's a great conversation. And I think it's the one that, you know, we've been shoved into having. But good, right? A good conversation. I'm yeah. glad. Yeah. I mean, the realist in me is I'm in the Bernie Sanders camp. I'm in the progressive camp. Um, philosophically though, do I, do I think, uh, uh, you know, is it a losing battle? Is it, is it not, does it not get to the root of the issue? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. I, I'm not so sure that policy based progressive reforms are enough to hold back the tide of totalitarian power, both in the authority of the state over the individual and the free reign that capital, that global capitalism and corporate capitalism have over us. I don't, I don't think the answer is, is policy reform or like incremental policy, incremental policy reform. Yeah. I don't think the modern nation state was built, or I don't think the, the modern checks and balances of democracy in America were built to handle the modern global multinational corporation. They've outfoxed, outsmarted, outmaneuvered, outspent, outspent. Um, deregulation became a way for them to, if any policy reform, progressive reform was ever put in place, deregulation was a battering ram that removed a dozen from the other side. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's just, you're bailing water out and then, and you know, a tidal wave hits you on the other, on the back end. So, um, 
I think it's a long, painful conversation, but it, but it is not so, it is not so recidivistic. I mean, s- social media and, and the polarity of political dialogue now, uh, is so reactionary and so one dimensional, yeah. whether you're right or wrong. Uh, it, it's not even anything resembling discourse, even people I agree with. Well, you, you know, know, I, I, we're going to have to get into the messy business of, of what can work, what will work and what the true nature of the problem is. I was going to say like when I'm, especially when I'm thinking about the, the fractures on the left and the, you know, like the Bernie wing versus the Hillary wing and all this stuff, which by the way, is exactly what Russia wants. They want that. Absolutely. Spat. They want to split. Yep. You know, so it's like you're sort of playing right into the hands of the people who are fucking with you on social media if you fall for that. But, you know, push that to the side. And uh, there's a conversation that really needs to happen, which I think probably is happening in a lot of places. And, you know, if the uh, like they just rolled out this single payer bill, however, ceremonially, and there were 15 cosignees, which is a development, you know, because like a few years ago, he rolled it out and there was zero. Absolutely. So, like, you know, he's definitely brought this kind of progressive policy uh, concern into the mainstream of the party. But the point that I want to make, which is the larger point, and there are there are weird crossovers between, I think, Bernie and his campaign and Trump's campaign in that um, to whoever, you know, to their supporters. And I guess there was some crossover between Bernie supporters and Trump supporters, though I think that's maybe overblown. Uh, in terms of the number of them, but they they were speaking to the same anger and to the same pain in whatever, in different ways, coming at it from different vectors. But I think one of the failings of the modern center left is to, is that, that they have not realized the depth and breadth of the suffering of working people and poor people in this country who are counting on them to represent them. And I feel like until they get that and like really get it. And they still have no idea. I mean, it's almost a form of psychosis or just the insulation. They can't, they can't wrap their head around. And you want to talk about, you know, real politic for a second, you know, going back to, you know, the end of Carter and the reign of Reagan and the beginning of deregulation it, the Democratic Party got its ass handed to it for so long during the Reagan years that the old guard went out, the new guard came in, and they devised a political strategy where they said, how are we going to beat the supermajority on the right? Are you talking about like the, the new Democrats? Yeah. So what did they do? I mean, they, this is, it was married in the, with the development of neoliberal capitalism. Right. So when Clinton takes office, policies that were no, were last associated with the Democratic Party, unions, minimum wage, environmental protection, these all went out the window. They were never talking points from the 90s on ever. They threw the working class under the bus. The, this whole media fabrication of the white working class and this, the, this is all just division among working people and among uh, among the global population, really. You know, um, the state, going back to Deleuze, one of my favorite Deleuze quotes is, we don't need to get rid of the state. We only need to get rid of the state in us. 
And that's, that's so powerful. And like what, what that means, I always return to it as a sort of crucible. What it means to me is we have got to stop talking to each other and talking about ourselves in terms that the state talks about us in. Because the, all the state is, is classification and division, status, legal status, economic status. You know, states don't grant rights. And this is a conversation that the far left and the far right, the polarities that are so big right now, they agree on so much. Why? Because of that deep-seated suffering of the working class in this country. Right. The Democrats threw the working class under the bus. They threw, they threw the black community and the Latino community and the, the illegal and immigrant community under the bus a long time ago. They pay them lip service in the past decade. But I'm talking about Clinton coming in, free trade, uh, global agreement on tariffs and trade was turned into WTO. Um, I mean, that's what the big, you know, Seattle had the big riot. You know, yeah, that's, what, yeah. that's what the big anti-capitalist and anti-globalization was. That, 99? that was 99. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that was right when I was going to school. So okay. um, I was a big part of that movement in Montreal and Canada and Boston and D.C. Um, World Bank, IMF, global free trade. Um, that's the root. That's the welfare structure. bill, crime bill, like a lot yeah. of these things. Matt, I mean, massive incarceration. Matt, I mean, this is what Hillary got killed on. Yeah. And they, they think it's a political attack orchestrated by the right. It's not. It's the lack of faith from your own constituency. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you have the audacity to go in black communities that you devastated by mass incarceration and have the audacity to, to ask them to vote for you. Well, I mean, this or is that the, you have their interest at heart. This is where I take issue. People see through the bullshit. Well, right. I, you know, there's a lack of authenticity. I mean, I, I hear a lot of, on, especially on Twitter, you know, a lot of um, Hillary supporters who feel that she got a raw deal, which I think she did, who feel that she, in um, so many cases, was held to a higher and different standard. That is then, most certainly true. Yeah. So right? these things the gender are, politics and because she's a woman, she was held to a higher standard. Right. But both things can be true. That's exactly what I was just going to say. But yeah. like, I feel like so many people have a blind spot there because you talk about like, you know, why, well, I forget what percent of it. It's like 47% of white women voted for Trump. Is that right? Or maybe it was uh, even more, or maybe it was like voted for Hillary, but like, you know, a surprising number or more middle to upper class white women voted for trump than hillary yeah it's like it's like the, like the 53 to 47 or something yeah so the point is that like the the numbers you know you sort of step, step back it's like really it's not some big gender thing like there's a lot of women who didn't vote for her either and the question i want to know or i want to ask is why you know well, what what's the problem you know what's the issue there given a choice between like a, a blatant misogynist like donald trump and just like, a, like an overall creep and hillary like what, what gives, you know? Well, I would hope that it comes back to the saving grace of the foundation of this country, which would be people don't vote. I mean, like, again, reductionistic, you know, this is just striations of the working class. This is infinite division yeah. and, and power. The consolidation of power benefits from division and dividing working class people. Um, people don't, you know, white People don't vote for white presidents. Women don't vote for women. Black people don't vote for black presidents. Right. It's not one to one. Right. People vote for ideals. Right. So you have to ask people why specifically they didn't trust Hillary. I mean, uh, uh, if you took Hillary's legacy, political legacy, in in you know bullet point form, and didn't attribute it to her name, her last name. 
uh, her 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 husband and the, the former president of the United States or her gender, her platform is center right. She's a neoliberal capitalist war hawk. So who in their right mind is going to if you put that resume in front of someone, you don't think you, she, you don't think she's center left. You think she's center. I right. think she's center right because of her foreign policy. Stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her le- her legacy, you know, in, in her legacy domestically with drug laws and incarceration alone, dealing with, you know, the massive crackdown of the security state, uh, voted for two illegal wars, uh, sold uranium rights to Russia, the very, you know, boogeyman that, you know, she claims destabilized the election, which is prob- most probably true. Sure. Um, I mean, the, the list just goes on. Well, that's the thing. I think like the Clintons. I think she's center right. I don't think she's center left. I think Bernie Sanders is is slightly left. Oh, really? But that's because I'm, you know, you're to the left of Sanders. I, I'm so far to the left of Sanders. <laughs> I guess that I, you know, I have one big stripe that's revolutionary anarchism. Yeah. I don't believe in the modern democratic state. I don't believe in neoliberal global capitalism. I think, but the realist in me, you know, as an adult with a family. Uh, and I'm an introvert, and I'm I'm insanely antisocial. You know, okay. I basically just want to live in the woods and write books. Yeah, and commune with nature and God and the universe. I'm sorry, I brought you here. I feel bad that you have to talk to me. <laughs> um, no, I uh, do. I think uh, you know, fifteen dollar minimum wage and Bernie's new you know universal Medicare and, and universal health care bill. Um, you know, state paid uh, four year undergraduate tuition for state colleges do i think that's going to vastly improve the quality of life in this country absolutely if it gets if it, ever if it gets can passed. even look at the look at the amount of political will just to achieve those single issue policy reforms right right but it, but as a matter of philosophy you know we're marching toward the cliff and we need to figure out what do you what want to see happen do. what would be your ideal scenario <laughs> i mean that's like a whole other podcast right I mean, let's go, let's go there. Let's go there. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, I mean, well, I I feel like I've been, I I don't want to be pedantic. What, what, what's yours? I mean, I guess I definitely would like to see Trump removed from office. I think it's well past time where that, um, is appropriate. I thought the process would be started by now. Yeah. But I do think Mueller is building, um, an absolutely bulletproof case. I hope so. I mean, I think that's the starting point. But I do think that, especially with issues like related to climate and poverty and health care, like I, there, there are so many things that ail the world. You know, there's, there's a million fires to put out, right? I mean, there's, a, there's so much human suffering uh, mm-hmm. all over the place. And so it can be overwhelming to consider it in totality. And I'm not, you know, I'm not well read enough or smart enough to have a full grasp of all of it. But what I tell myself, and I guess sometimes you ever play this, you know, you play this game where you're like, well, what would I do if I were running for office? Because these people have sure. a tough, they, it's a tough job. Or yeah. even asking, so like, what you just asked me, you yeah. know, what, what, you, what do you want? What do you what, want? What's yeah. The end, what's the end goal? You know, so what's so the what's the this is what I think. Point? I think like the first thing I would do is I would say, let's try to prioritize catastrophes where what is the biggest emergency that would be a start yeah what's the biggest emergency affecting the most people can we can we answer that question 
I would guess it would be climate. And climate is a huge issue that encompasses all sorts of other issues. We have issues. a current, we're dealing with a current, you know, insane regime that doesn't even admit that it exists. Yeah, but, I flew down here from Seattle to LAX, uh, and I counted, well, I, I, I saw not one, not two, eight, nine, ten wildfires. Yeah, the whole West so is on So the fire. West is on fire. There's three Category 4 or 5 hurricanes. Yeah. You know, a, multiple American cities. The, the, the disaster relief required the amount of dollars is tenfold what the infrastructure spending would be right right but the so far right down. you know gop is is they act like they they don't want to tax anybody they don't want to tax corporations they don't want they don't want any the southern states are all the ones that get hit and then they ha- watching them perform mental gymnastics enough to justify asking for federal aid yeah when they vote against it they're entire they they stake their careers on it right is like you know these, they all have to go. Yeah. It's a big but mess. Again, and but, then, but in the service, like you said, of, of prior, let's prioritize our biggest problems first. And then start there. Cli- so, climate. Climate. And then disasters, right? Yeah. So with, um, you know, moving there, just, just to respond to that, you could also say, though, that uh, that I think criminal justice reform in the prison system is pro- is a slow moving consistent natural disaster yep enacted upon the poor people of this country yeah and it like it's like a cyclical and you know like they can't can't escape it can't escape it and uh and for profit but i you know just to kind of finish the thought um if you ask me what i want to see happen it would be who you know someone with a really bold agenda and the um, political capital and support to actually make it happen. Like, I feel like I want these c- catastrophes to be prioritized, but then I, we need big action. Like, incremental with climate is not going to cut it. Like, we have a fucking five-alarm fire happening, and we're, like, twiddling our thumbs or denying it, you know, all this. And that's really where you see, and this goes back to the anarchist politics. You, They always say, fascism is what capitalism does when the contradictions get too shaky and it's in a period of crisis and it needs to consolidate itself. Capitalism benefits from the consolidation of power. Fascism is capital's most pure form. Mussolini said fascism should be rightly be called corporatism because it's the direct marriage of corporations and the state. So is it, what do we have? What do we have now? We're dangerously close to it. And then you actually see the, the the massive irony is that you see headlines like China, who benefits from a capitalist economy with a communist authoritarian government. And China can just say, um, you know, we're just thinking about probably outlawing all gas and oil uh, burning cars uh, five years from now. Because we can just do that. And the United States would never, <laughs> it could never happen. Right. Right. So like at what point? Do is there a way? Is there a venue to, to act big? Right in democracy, right, or in in the United States? What's a good country? Is there, is there a country in this? <laughs> Show the, me a good country. Yeah, exactly. where's a country that's working? Is it Sweden? Do we just well, yeah, Scandinavia is you know operating at at a surplus, but um, I mean they're also incredibly homogenized. I was going to say isolated and. Yeah, xenophobic. <laughs> so it's either and beautiful. I was going to say it's like they're hot, homogenized, isolated, and xenophobic. 
<laughs> that, that's a good title for a book. Uh, but it's like that. It's like, so it's either like a communist authoritarian regime or a hot, homogenized, xenophobic, and what was the other one? <laughs> Paranoid? Whatever it Paranoid. was. <laughs> freezing. Freezing their asses off. Uh, it's, um, a, it's a huge... These are big questions. And I'm, you know, I'm just glad to talk to somebody who's like engaged uh at the level that you are and have been since you were an adolescent you know and, and like way beyond what i was up to when i was that age i mean in a certain way i feel like i went in one end of the left and came out the other and so that gives me a perspective now where i you know i don't know if i know more or less <laughs> i have no i have no idea um i mean i'm incredibly pessimistic but I mean, it also combines with everything else. It combines with philosophy. It combines with, um, you know, mythology and the history of literature and art and aesthetics. I mean, it's not it's not one thing to me anymore. Where are you spiritually? Spiritually, I am <laughs> a void. A void. <laughs> uh, I. I believe there's you know an innate intelligent structure to the universe i think the universe matter and nature itself is uh conscious um i think we potentially are living in a simulation uh but that, like, like the, uh, the but matrix? that we but that we are the creation of the simulation okay or at least a part we are we're a part of the source like some sort of digital this like, um uh, that's interesting i mean we can we can talk about so many aspects of this stuff right but um i uh, all right so on the surface i do agree with the new you know information coming out of quantum physics and that um one yes the the universe may be simulated uh, or that the universe isn't made out of structural matter it's not made out of atoms it's made out of information Yes, that's true. Um, but the best, the quickest way to summarize it that I thought was so brilliant, I, I forget where I read it uh, fairly recently, actually. It's been sticking in my head. Someone said that uh, whatever the, the paradigm, the governing paradigm of an epic of history is, that's what the new cutting edge is. That's what the new language is. Okay. So, like, um, when the scientific revolution happened, it was, it was atomic. Right. Uh, and now that we're in the information age of of digital media and computers, um, it's digital information. So the next revolution, the next phase is that universe, the universe and matter itself is consciousness. Not the other way around. So hopefully, if we are all in the process of becoming con conscientious and self-aware uh, from ourself through to our society and how we live on the planet and how we interact with our planet. Our political systems are just how we manage, right? Like the drama of how we live every day. Um, I, I hope that the next revolution is, is consciousness. I think matter and reality itself is consciousness. I'm kind of there with you, right? It's like, uh, <laughs> It's like the best analogy I've heard is like, you know, like, uh, we're all waves, you know, like each human being is a wave. We have our lifetime. We, we like crest, we break, we crash on the shore, we're dead, but we're always the ocean. Absolutely. So there you go. Like yep. that, that kind of makes sense to me. We emerge from and return to eternity. Yeah. And we feel, but we forget that we're the ocean. We think we're these waves. We get all caught up in our waveness, but we don't realize our oceanness. Like, like, uh, Alan Watts said, um, uh, 
he was talking about existentialism and existential dread, right? And and the fear of not being. Yeah. Which, you know, when you're a young artist or you're reading philosophy or whatever, that existentialism is sort of a, a jumping off point for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> and Alan Watts said, if existentialism is the fear of going to sleep and never waking up, um, consider for a moment that you're only here because you you woke up having never gone to sleep. <laughs> Which is true. I mean, you know, like that's a thing too, is I think about death and I'm like, it's probably just going to be like, you go to sleep, but you don't wake up. Right. And potentially that, that is our natural state. Yeah. That's what we came from. It's like this weird, <laughs> Exactly. then like I get into the Buddhism and there's like, there's like what, 28 levels of rebirth and you, you know, whatever it is. And mm -hmm. Maybe if you're tuned in at some like really deep level of consciousness, you can be somehow, you can maintain some sort of awareness of that process. But for most people, I think it's just night, night, right? You just, you yeah, just, I believe so. Just go to sleep. Yeah. The, 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 some of the more philosophical, uh, traditions of Buddhism, when you get into those higher levels of, of, you know, how they deal with with, uh, you know, what happens when you do reach like eliminating karmic debt and when you do retain consciousness after death, you know, those higher levels of the end of enlightenment in Buddhism. Um, I mean, it starts to get really, I, I don't think these are thoughts that you're, that people have. And I would hope that they do. What do you mean? Um, that, you know, uh, potentially that, that reincarnation, is uh, that the embodiment in this physical plane um, is is not necessarily a form of punishment, but that it's a, a lower vibrational state where you actually are trapped in the material world. Yeah, and if you can retain your consciousness through death, uh, you you graduate into into pure enlightenment, where uh, you don't have the burden or the drama of being physically. Um, incarnated again that's what i'm going for yeah like when I you just want to vibrate basically when you see the light at, yeah. the, at the end of the tunnel go you, go you, to you, it <laughs> well they're saying resist don't oh. you don't have to go to it oh really the the light is the soul trap of reincarnation oh so that the great you know floating void uh is 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 all mind it's all consciousness so right? stay away from the light i think so okay but you can't you, you know. heard it you heard it here first people <laughs> <laughs> stay away from avoid don't go the to the fucking light it's like, <laughs> but i don't uh, think you i don't think it's up to you i you know i'm not any expert on buddhism at all you know okay um but, but uh i don't think it's up to you i think it's i think it's what state your soul and your spirit and your mind are in gotta do you some know, work we have a lot of work to do i do i feel like i want to do this work but then like you know it's just so much and to try to do the work like real spiritual work and to like the, it feels like the world that I live in, I mean, living in the middle of Los Angeles, um, having a family makes it harder. Absolutely. Like to really do deep spiritual work. Like there's a reason why contemplatives are contemplatives. Um, oh yeah. That's, there's a reason monastic. Yeah. It makes it know, a lot easier. It, absolutely. It makes it a lot easier. So you it's know, like, I you wonder, live in a monastery on a cliff and you don't have to, you know, have a mortgage or that's a great a, life. Yeah, absolutely. If you can, I mean, I'm drawn to it. I, I am wish, too. I, I am wish. too. I take cold showers and take mushrooms in the woods and oh, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much there. You're I, there. I'm there. I, uh, I'm going to come up and visit you. 
Yeah, you gotta. We're gonna go on a vision quest. So we'll 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 do we'll do that, and then to cool down, we'll we'll uh, listen to vinyl with Johnny Evison and play <laughs> play ping pong. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's uh it's an attract. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities in um, between the contemplative life and the writer's life. I mean, right? I mean, writing is a contemplative exercise. It's deep work, and you need to have that space and that quiet in order to do it. And I just, I guess I feel like, you know, when when everyone's out there, especially I think people who are are deep thinkers, uh, people who are drawn to books or whatever, trying to think about how to live. Where do I live? What do I do? It's Montaigne's last essay. Yeah. What's the best way to spend my life? How to live. I don't want to waste this time I have with whatever, whatever the fuck this is. I want to make the most of it. And fiction is absolutely one avenues circling that question yeah and i find myself increasingly admiring people and and like being in awe of people especially who at a young age like in their adolescence or their early 20s decide to become a contemplative and to uh renounce and become you know a monastic now people have different motivations people there are there are different um you know, some people are better monks than others or better nuns than others. Just like people, some people are, you know, you're in it for the right reasons or you. And so many other people who are extroverted, uh, you know, they achieve uh, that that spiritual uh, activation through community and through help and through helping. Yeah. Right. So there's that, too. You I know, guess so. Yeah, there's different we, ways. We, we need all the help we can get. Right. I'm personally, you know, a solitary, you know, cerebral monastic, you know. But can you do, can you do writer? Yeah. But I mean, I guess my question is like, wow, it seems really hard to go deep if you're living in the crazy digital crowded world. Oh, I think so. I mean, man, I mean, this brings the conversation back to capitalism for me. I mean, everything is just now the, now the dominant commodity form of capital is not only digital media, but it's actually the branding of the subjective identity itself. I mean, how do you escape that? You know, I do it. I, 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 you have to, I'm selling books and I'm, you know, you have friends and networks and contacts and you're traveling and you're got you're a all, platform. You got to have get, a platform. You got to have a platform. You got to have a personal brand these days. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I even think it's worse than that, you know, not, not to pontificate on it, but it the, again, goes back to Deleuze. Um, Deleuze, one of, so when you ask me like, what, what's Deleuze one-on-one, he's really hard to, to summarize. But one of the things is, uh, he wrote a book, he wrote, he wrote two very influential books, one anti-Oedipus, uh, that dealt with the ego and the repression of sexual drives and all that. Um, and the second one, uh, is called a thousand plateaus. Um, and together they were called capitalism and schizophrenia. <laughs> so, you know, on the, on the surface, it makes you laugh, but, uh, the, it's very hard to summarize the argument, but essentially what I've taken away from it is Deleuze basically is making the argument that capitalism promotes schizophrenia. Another way to say that spiritually is that it promotes mental uh, disintegration because it promotes uh, an abstraction. Capital, capital value on an object is an abstraction, right? That's back to Marx. But uh, capitalism promotes in in unrealizable, uh, a false and abstract and exaggerated and unhealthy, um, relationship with the objective natural world. Everything's a commodity. 
everything's a commodity, but it also does not possesses or does not possess the qualities that it actually has innately. And so it's capitalism itself, not even excesses of capitalism, not even gross displays of greed. Right. Capitalism in its inner workings promotes a false relationship with nature. And that's, these are the roots of the problems that we're going to have to go into. Right. If we're going to survive. So what are we, like a barter economy or <laughs> what are we, what are we going <laughs> no for? It's like burning man. Not an economist. The I whole world know. is a burning Again, man. Again, like, yeah, full, you know, philosophically, I, I can think of, I've thought about these things for, for days, weeks, and years, you know, I love it philosophically. I mean, it's healthy for the mind. Yeah. Um, what the answer is in pragmatically for politics or economics, I don't know. Um, but do you, you want me to bring it back? Do you ask me what my, uh, what I want to see happen? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, Let's bring it back full the, circle. The ultimate question. Yeah. Since you talked about, you had a very great, uh, pragmatic answer that I'm a hundred percent on board with. Let's start with the biggest catastrophes first. I mean, pr- pragmatically, that's I'm, I'm on board with that 100%. So, you know, the only thing I have to offer on the other end would be for myself. Uh, I want to see a revolution in, in signification. That stems from, if we just thought, you know, we're, I, I look at it like critical reason is stripping away falsity. So I just talked about how capitalism promotes a false relationship with objects in the natural world. Um, we Earlier we talked about uh, the state, even the modern democratic state. States don't grant rights. People have unalienable, innate rights. States choose which rights they can afford to acknowledge and which they can't or which they don't want to because it threatens their power structure. So that's the state and that's the economy. Um, But below all of that, on a very deep level, on a civilizational level, on an epochal level, I think we need a new system of signification. I don't, I think capitalism has created the masses itself. The idea of the mass of people. I mean, it's wild out there. You know, we're in the middle of Los Angeles right now. Yeah. I mean, every day is a rat race. It's just complete insanity. It's crazy. It's a scramble for resources. I've lived here for two decades. <laughs> and there's less and less resources on this planet. And the poorest places where capitalism just raped the third world first, then the second world, and now it's coming for for the first world. There's gonna there's very soon potentially in our lifetime or our, our children's lifetime. There's not going to be much left. We're a virus with shoes, as Bill Hicks used to say. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So, um, and and this does go back to my critique of of liberal progressive politics and policy reform. Of course, I support it 100%, and of course, I'm on board. But do I think it's a, you know, a, a losing effort? Probably but because this is my, the root of my philosophical problem, this is what I want to see happen. I think people have been rendered worthless under capitalism uh, because, I mean, you see, you see the increasing amounts of homeless. You see the increasing amounts of, of, of physical and mental illness, that there is no inherent value that they can provide the labor market anymore. 
So they become, quote unquote, wards of the state. But then the state was deregulated and gutted. So they're wards of nobody and nothing and nowhere anymore. If you don't have any capital with which the system can use you, you do you literally do not exist. And that is a massive problem. I mean, it, it breaks my heart. I think the root of any new political or philosophical system would have to be that everybody on the planet, regardless of nationality, legal status, race, gender, class, any fucking abstraction that the state or power would love to create and the the body of the human race on the planet. Capital gets to be global, but people don't. Capital gets to cross borders, but people don't. Right. It's a, it, this is the contradiction that's creating so much friction now. Um, I would love to see new signification, you know, what's been called human rights, something new that acknowledges the inviolable value of every single person on the planet that doesn't revolve around legal status, that doesn't revolve around citizenship, that doesn't revolve around monetary value or capital or wealth. Right. Yeah. We're going to need it. Or else, you know, there's a Holocaust waiting for us and our natural environment is going to start flat out rejecting us. It's, I mean, I feel like the earth, I mean, it's like it's very easy to start drawing these comparisons between what's happening with these uh, catastrophic weather events and the fires and everything we just talked about. And, you know, a body producing antibodies to fight off uh, an infection. Absolutely. Like we are the infection. And it's pretty clear that earth is now. Like the natural systems of the earth are just basically activating. We're taking and we're not contributing. Yeah. So how are we going to, I mean, this was what, this is just a fraction of the great tragedy of the, the pain at the center of the, the American continent. You know, the, this country, you know, it's an old saying, it's been quoted so much, but a country that was founded on genocide and slavery may not ever know peace. Right. Right. These are the bleeding wounds that are still open. Big karmic debt. Huge karmic debt. So, I mean, think about the, 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 not just the lives, not just the culture, not just the society. Think about the knowledge and the wisdom that was lost with eliminating the native population of this continent. Right. Who better knows how to live on this land? Who better knows how to organize themselves uh, horizontally and not in vertical systems of power? Who, who better knows how to confederate themselves in horizontal organization where everything is used the most efficient way. I was going to say the, ecolo the ecology with, with damaging the ecology and the, and the, and the earth and the land itself and each other that humans need to return to ecology. This is like the, you, when you read philosophy, you just see the enlightenment and humanism, you know, yeah, it, it brought Europe out of the dark ages, but humanism separated human progress from nature mm -hmm. created a subject and, and separated the subject from the object. I think we're going through a very painful process of returning. We have to return. Got to go back to the woods, to and the natural state. Yeah. Not, I mean, not even, we have to bring the woods <laughs> like, like Deleuze, right? We have to bring the woods back into us. We don't, we don't need to get rid of the state. We need to get rid of the state in us. Yeah. And what, what needs to take its place? The ecology, the mushrooms, <laughs> the mushrooms, the fungus, <laughs> the knowledge of the fungus. So wait, how often do you do that? Is it something you do like <laughs> biannually? Like, do you do it like on a, like, I mean, cause I can see it as like a medicinal 
once or twice a year, clear the cobwebs, have an experience. Is that kind of what it is for you? Like, and it's a kind of spiritual thing. Oh yeah. It's absolutely, uh, um, entheogenic plants and, and psychedelic, um, you know, activation of your consciousness. It, it isn't recreational for me. I mean, I think it can be recreational when you're young or, you know, you, you're irresponsible and you don't really pay for it or suffer for it. But once you know how to treat, it's just, it's a system of knowledge. And this is the thing. Everybody can see it now because it's gotten so bad, right? The, the West is burning. The hurricanes are, are drowning cities The you know, the, the fight for resources, LA's in a drought every, every year. Every Have year. a good trip, everybody. <laughs> People can see those warning signs now, but when you take mushrooms or when you take fungus or when you take uh, DMT, I, uh, user warning, I do not recommend anyone takes DMT. That is not, it, it is not for the faint of heart. Okay. It's the most powerful hallucinogen. That's, but only, well, that's like 15 minutes. It's, it's an entire, yeah. Terrence McKenna called it a thousand hits of acid in 15 minutes. Wow. Um, it, it's pure. You've done it. You've have you seen like the self dribbling basketballs and going into the dome and all that shit? Yep, absolutely. You've seen them. Yep, seen the machine elves. The machine elves. That's yep. right. I went through the center of the chrysanthemum and down the silver cord. So there are consistencies in experience. Yeah, it's pyramids with 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 fire shooting out of the top and large alien arachnids walking around. It's some prehistoric plane. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. Have you done it's that? all real. That's it's all there for anybody who wants to go find it. I had somebody who was I talking to, or maybe I read this. I was like talking to Tao Lin, but it was about a guy who did it and like he saw some freaky alligator. It fucking bit him and he freaked out. I mean, it was, you know, it was like an awful. That like, sounds, I mean, having done it, that sounds awful. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had really, DMT is different. Uh, DMT, there's no control. DMT is, like you, we mentioned the Matrix, right? If you think of a, of a lattice of space time, like the grid, right? Like the grid that. If, so say if the information is a sim, or the universe is information and it is a simulation, right? And it's being simulated on a grid. Okay. DMT shows you the grid. That's underneath prevailing creation of space time. So if you're not ready to see it, you won't see it. I had a, I, I had transformative trips on DMT that took me a long time to process. It may have fundamentally changed paradigmatically how I even thought about problems or how I even thought thoughts themselves. Um, I had another friend who did it around the same time. He's a musician and he, and he just, I go, he asked me what I, what I saw. And I told him, you know, what we just, some of the stuff we, I just said, I go, so did you see any of that? And he was looking at me like with his jaw open and he goes, I didn't see any of that. I was like, what did you see? And he goes, he goes, well, I saw it. I saw that the elves, he goes, but I only saw one elf and I was outside of my house in New Hampshire and the elf was sitting on a branch in a tree and he's, he was pointing at me and laughing and there was little objects coming out of his mouth when he was laughing. What do these elves look like? They look like basketball. They elves? look like the fucking Expedia elf or the Priceline elf or whatever the hell they look like elves. Yeah. I think the basketballs are sort of the vehicles they used to travel. Oh, okay. But the, <laughs> it, that's how they arrive. <laughs> And then they're just there. Holy shit. I mean, it's, yeah, no, it sounds completely bananas to, to anybody that hasn't done it. Have you but, done it's, it's a, but anyway, he said, um, he's a very sort of, uh, of pure heart and very innocent guy. Yeah. And, uh, he said, the elf was laughing at me and said, 
and and said that I looked like a greasy monkey and that I <laughs> that I had no business being there and he was stopping me at the gates and he just told me to turn around and go home. You're so you're not ready for this. You're, you're not ready for what do you even how did you even get here? God, now I feel self-conscious. I wonder if the, <laughs> would the elves accept me. Uh but you know back to the moral, you know, the the big question was um uh fungus and mushrooms and psilocybin um those are systems of knowledge. It's like it's plant RNA. Those are that that is plant that is our our DNA. Plant RNA is the story of information and knowledge and experience on this earth that is potentially hundreds of thousands or millions of years old. This is a plant planet. They've been here a lot longer than we have. And you when you take them and you start like you said the wildfires and the and the hurricanes, people are starting to listen. So if you take mushrooms and you meditate and you start to think about the state of your soul, your own soul, the state of your spirit, whether you're wounded, how you're wounded, and how you can be healed, and then what type of thoughts you have, and what type of energy you vibrate on, and how you connect with everything, returning back to the ecology, that system of information is trying to speak to you. And all you have to do is decondition yourself enough to listen. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I feel like there's, I've always felt like there was something there. And I've talked about it on this show a million times. Uh, and that maybe articulates like the importance of it better than maybe anybody I've ever spoken with about it is that you've got to get back into touch with plant ecology. Like we all come from the earth. Like that's, that's not like, you know, woo woo bullshit. That's the truth. It's not. And it's going to be our, our savior. It's going to be our future. And it's it's also going to be where we're going back to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the rich are very busy building rockets and and one-way missions to Mars to terraform the moon and Mars to get the fuck off this planet. And guess what? The the ones that can afford it are going to leave, and we're all going to be stuck here with the mess they made. You know, but, but they're going to be on fucking Mars, dude. <laughs> exactly. Go Fuck ahead. Mars. Go yeah. to Mars. I don't want Mars. Yeah, there's like, what, 8,000 nukes on this planet? Like, they're going to leave a couple? Just let them go to Mars, and then we'll take care of them. I just, yeah, I have, I'm very, I'm, I'm <laughs> very bearish on Mars. I've never understood the obsession. Like, if it were like a... a it's the an, fucking arrogance to think that they can turn anything into what they want. Well, yeah, like Elon Musk is like, well, we'll just nuke the, you know, we'll nuke the poles and we'll... Like, There's no atmosphere. We'll, you have to terraform an atmosphere. Yeah, yeah we'll nuke the poles we'll to create ge- polarity. What's and, it called? Geoengineering? Yeah. Or, you know. Well, that's what they think they're doing right now. But, you know... <sighs> no, it's so true. But thank you for saying that. Um, I mean, these, these are types of conversation that, you know, from literature to to philosophy to spirituality, like, we... We're in deep shit. And I think we, in, in general, I think so many people, whatever type of pain they're in, whatever their experiences are, I think everybody is starting to sense that we need to return to, we, that, that we knew once how to survive on this planet. And there's a great amount of knowledge that's been forgotten. And it's still here. And it's speaking. And we just have to listen. Have you done five dried grams? Have you done the Terrence McKenna thing? <laughs> that is so funny you asked me that. Um, yes, I have. Wow. And, and were you just like, was it like a white knuckled? Well, I mean, was it? Because I feel like if you're up in the woods in the Pacific Northwest, like that's the place to do it. So like you're saying, if you feel like you get to return to the, you get to 
get in touch with plant ecology, come come see me in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it's a rainforest. Five dried grams. No, five dried grams is um again, like I said about DMT, not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Um, you gotta be ready. Five dried grams is not a fun time. You have to be ready. I mean it it, it is like an old I mean, as you know, the different plant medicines, as shamans call it, they're different plant medicines. Yeah. You know, a boga is getting people to kick narcotics and, and sure. heroin, right? Um, now, finally, after the in lunacy of the drug war, uh, even though those fucking laws are still in place, they're academically they're starting to loosen because the you know the war against the counterculture of the sixties is complete. Yeah. So. Uh, everything's been properly commodified. It's safe <laughs> to for pharmaceutical companies to use MDMA to treat anxiety and depression, you know, because they're tired of paying for lawsuits or people fucking overdose on their on the pharmaceuticals. Right. You know, uh, this medicine's been here the entire time, and every single whatever state you're in, whatever co- your condition is, you will know. It'll tell you. You know, the, it's it's like getting a lesson from. So you said five dry grams, the Terrence McKenna thing. It's like getting a lesson from a very stern, uh, ancient ancestor. Yeah. It's like if you think like your, you know, your your terse, tough as nails grandfather was bad. This is your great 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 grandfather. <laughs> it's gonna take you to like the br- psycho spiritual woodshed. Oh yeah, it's it's brutal. It shows you every like all of the waste and imbalance in your in your psyche. You're um, really selling people on this. It I hurts. Feel. It hurts on the level of bone. Yeah. yeah. I'm writing an essay right now about, about the nature of cold. The last time I did mushrooms is I've been, I mean, I'm a new Englander and I, I love the cold. Uh-huh. Um, I really want to, one of the things I'm getting into in the essay is uh, I really want to study, uh, with Wim Hof. Yeah. Yeah. Him? Yeah, the the dude, man. yeah. He does like these crazy swims in like freezing yeah. water and he has a meditative breathing practice mixed with meditation where he does like insane cold water immersion and he did all the scientific tests and there's been documentaries and any article that's ever been written about him is really annoying because it's from this the arrogant point of view of a skeptic trying to prove him wrong and then of course like they the cold breaks them down and they're like no he's you know he's legit (laughs) um i love the cold and sometimes i do mushrooms and like and and um um I like submerge myself in uh, like the glacial rivers and you like jump into the, the river. I do. Yeah. Dear God. Yeah, I know. And it's like uh, in the cascade mountains and you know, the Olympic national park. And I mean, it's gorgeous up in the Pacific Northwest, of course, yeah. but the water's cold. Yeah, I was going to say water is fucking freezing. <laughs> it's like, you already got enough going on sensory wise. <laughs> jump into a freezing river. Like Wim Hof, uh, and one of the things he Wim Hof said, uh, the cold is God. And then I started, I, I, you know, I want to learn his actual method because I don't know it, but uh, I have amazing pain tolerance and I have an amazing threshold for the cold. So I just, you know, I take showers all the way on cold. I can swim in cold rivers. I mean, I'm from New Hampshire and I go, like you said, like you surf in New Hampshire. I mean, there's guys that do it in February in a dry suit. I mean, that's, that's insane. It's supposed to be healthy. It like is cold plunges. Like oh, it's great. There's for like you. a whole, there's like a whole thing of it's, it's good for your body. But, all right. So what is climate change? The planet's heating, right? A lot of the excesses are coming from heat, whether it's, uh, whether it's, you know, animal agriculture, whether it's combustion, right? Whether it's uh, CO2 and greenhouse gas, a lot of our problems are coming from overheating and the cold is like, a, for me, I realize it on mushrooms that help me moving back in the direction of cold. 
Okay. Everything yeah. and 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 capitalism, the entire fucking paradigm of the of the culture of seeking pleasure, right? Buying objects, fetishizing objects, seeking desire. Um, that's what they're always selling you. So move in the opposite direction. Move in something that is distinctly not pleasurable Go and jump, not jump. desirable. Go at jump all. in a frozen river. When's the last time anyone you know your average Joe on the street did that? Made a conscious decision to do something that is definitely not going to be pleasant. And what are you going to learn? What are you going to learn? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> like you said, what, Save me the trouble. They were a human fungus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so dark and saw. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. It's not dark Kansas. No, it is not. Okay. Arkansas. Like so Arkansas with a D. You're setting a book in the Ozarks. Guy from uh, Boston and New Hampshire and Seattle. How did you land there? I had a story about two twin brothers. One of them was a bluegrass musician in the shadow of his father, who was a famous bluegrass musician. The other one was getting married back home. Uh, and they had a contentious childhood. And uh, they went back for the wedding. And it was actually a failed short story to begin with. It was just a it was many just great, a, many great novels begin yeah, as failed short stories, right? It was a halfway, half a dozen drafts. It wasn't working, and I only had this little sketch for the short story years ago that just sat dead on the vine um, about the brothers. The, the short story was only the brothers meeting at the wedding and getting in like a rough and tumble fight, and re you reconstructed their fallout from it. But I was like, "There's so much more here." Uh, so then I started researching. I started adding different things to that nugget of, uh, of conflict. Okay. Right. And then, so I started building out and I was like, okay, well this bluegrass music, like what is the real tradition of bluegrass music? It's really Appalachia and Kentucky. And then it's the Ozarks. So I was like, all right, well the Ozarks is one of those mysterious, uh, it's one of those great places to set a novel because like winter's bone. Like Winter's Bone, and that's why Daniel Woodrell is the king of the Ozarks. Yeah, he is. Um, so you know, it was it was that's where that story happened. It had to happen there. It had to be there. Um, did you go research it? I did. You did. I did. Yeah. Um, jumped, I, in, jumped in a river. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the thing. Uh, the geology of the Ozarks is an anomaly. Um, I get into it in the book a little bit. Um, there's a lot of you know. Uh, karst hydrology. I, re I read like academic works on karst hydrology and how the Ozarks formed uh, a lot of underground rivers. I love the metaphor of water moving underground. Like it was consciousness moving underground, carrying one thing that was unrelated subconsciously from point A to point B. It's reminding me of the talking head song. Causal relation. Which one? What the water, like water is moving underground. That's lyrically. With the water moving. <laughs> yeah. Once in a lifetime. Yeah. There you yeah. go. You might find, you might ask yourself. Yeah. So there was water. These moving aren't my under children. <laughs> this isn't my house. This isn't my house. The fuck am I? There's an elf. There's an elf in the garage. Uh, so there was water moving underground in the Ozarks. I didn't know. Like, I don't know. It's like history, like uh, geologically yeah. or. And then, so, uh, so the, so the central thrust of the plot in Arkansas is, uh, uh, the black shield well, during the, during the, um, while they're home for Malcolm's wedding, Jordan, the black sheep of the family, discovers a, a secret in their family history that going back to the end of the Civil War in Arkansas, in the Ozarks, on the Missouri border, um, every generation of men in their family have been twins, like he and his brother. And every generation, one twin always ends up murdering their father. That's cheery. 
So it's a cyclical murder myth that repeats through time. So uh, against the backdrop of the wedding, there's these alternating historical chapters that go back. And then it gets to a, a, a forgotten civil war battle uh, that happens in the Ozarks um, in 1862. And, and it, what is now a ghost town, it's still on the map, based on a real battle. So I got, I got way into lost civil war history in that area. Um, you know, homesteading, bluegrass, moonshining, evangelical movement. And it, like, it's all in there. Wow. So it just built organically. That was the story. I, I never understand. I mean, the, the again, another function of capitalism and markets. I don't understand why there's such a focus on fiction writers writing what they know, writing where they're from. Yeah, I just don't get it. It's, it's fiction. You know, like, you know, like I said one time at a reading when somebody asked me, like, Ray Bradbury never went to Mars. Right. You know, like, it's called fiction. Yeah, but some, I mean, there's different kinds of writers. I think, like, no, some, there are. There are. There's some, there's some writers that write the same novel different aspects of the same story their entire lives, which is fascinating. It's just not what I'm doing. You know, like again, uh, well, I am going home now. I'm the, the new novel I'm writing is about a hockey player that gets the head injury. Right. And then he has to go home to Massachusetts in the middle of the winter, which is very depressing and cold. Right. And, uh, he gets prescribed a series of antipsychotics, anti-seizure drugs and, uh, painkillers. And then he, so, and there's a huge opiate, epidemic in the whole country yeah but, but it, in new england northeast is the bad. northeast is very bad you know no i know my me and my family and friends dozens of people that od'd really absolutely died. it's terrible and it's all in small depressed post-industrial working class towns you know it's a big fucking problem it's horrible yeah um so that's what i'm drawing from and now that you know for me it's the easiest thing i've ever written because i'm drawing on growing up playing hockey right but uh, I'm, I'm getting into the psychology and, and, you know, the neuropathology of, of CTE, um, and how they're going to treat it, but also what the symptoms are. Um, and then I use it to, for the, my character, I use it to trigger an existential crisis where he doesn't know who he is when he's not playing hockey. Cause that was really the, I, I read a lot of, uh, interviews and essays with players and because of my dad and my history, I, I, I'm so lucky. I get to talk to a couple of players that whose careers were ended by, by head hits. Uh -huh. So they start to, I'm like, I don't want to know the story. I don't want to know about you as the player. I want to know about the personal struggles. I want to know about depression. I want to know about not being able to, to turn lights on in your house. You know, I want to know about loud, you know, loud noises that happen five miles away that are piercing and move to the center of your brain. Um, the loss of identity and subjectivity and self. Um, and then I'm combining that with, uh, with the, the opiate problem in new England. Um, so, so it's a comedy. This is comedy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all sounds fascinating, man. And I'm, uh, I've really enjoyed meeting you, getting a chance to talk with you about all this stuff. You're a deep thinker. And, uh, I think you have your eye on the ball. You're thinking about a lot of really important stuff and I think we need people who are willing to go down into the weeds on this. And, and it's not easy stuff to confront. It's not like, you know, it's not fun to sit around thinking about, um, you know, like what, what, what do I want to happen? What's, what are the deepest ills of the world? But we need our writers, especially, I think, to do this work. So I can, I salute you for doing it. Congratulate you on the publish, uh, on the publication, uh, of dark and saw glad that we can, um, shine a little light on it in the book club. And just thank you for making time to come over. Thanks for having me, Brad. I uh, 
like I said, I've been, you know, between being a fiction writer and being an editor and uh, being in the literary community for years. Uh, I've listened to the podcast for years. You know, we've interacted, but uh, it's such a pleasure to be first time on the podcast and first time to meet you in L.A. as well. So um, deeply grateful. And uh, it was a wonderful conversation. All right, you guys, there you go. That's Jared Middleton. What did I tell you? Good conversation, huh? His novel is called Darkensaw. It is available now from Dezank Books. It is uh, the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Go get your copy right now. Darkensaw by Jarrett Middleton. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. That is free. Get it for your uh, device. It's an easy way to listen to the show. Keep track of new episodes. If you would like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to support the uh, t-shirt fundraiser for the Salos' family, just go to uh, the Other People Twitter feed at OtherPPL or go to OtherPPL.com. Track down the link for the t-shirt fundraiser. It's very easy to do. It's a great cause. Please support it. If you would like to join the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, more information is available at thenervousbreakdown.com. Just click on Book Club in the menu bar. What else? I feel like I'm covering everything. There's a lot of like uh, details to cover, a lot of logistics, but I think that's it. Uh, I really did enjoy talking with Jared Middleton. A lot going on. Hope you guys enjoyed it too. So... Uh, very pleased with the outpouring of love and support that I've seen from the literary community for Matthew Salisus. I gotta say, it's been, I was telling him, uh, you know, we were messaging back and forth and I was saying, you know, I think this is the most positive experience I've had on the internet in recent memory, to say the least. And definitely top five ever. Sometimes, you know, good things can happen on the internet when you see people come together and support a cause. And I'm particularly moved by the fact that so many people supporting this, this, uh, effort, are uh, like a bunch of broke-ass writers, let's be honest. You know, if we can come together and get something like this done, then certainly, uh, you know, a lot is possible in this world in terms of helping one another out. So I'm moved by generosity from people who don't necessarily have a ton to give but are giving anyway. That's a beautiful thing, and that's something worth emulating. And it's also, you know, it brings up questions about like, well, where's the line? How much can I give? You know, we have a tendency, I think, as human beings sometimes when faced with need to kind of retract or like be like, well, you know, can I do this? I might need this for me. I might need this for say, but you know what? Who needs it more is a good question, perhaps. And uh, certainly at this point, um, you know, what Matt and his family are dealing with, they need they need it more than most everybody I know. So step up, get a T-shirt, do a good thing, support that cause. And thank you from uh, the bottom of my heart to Roxanne Gay and to everyone who has done so to this point. We'll talk to you next week. (laughs) 